0: Welcome to the 17th episode of Middle East Institute's podcast series, Boots Off the Ground, Security and Transition in the Middle East and Beyond. In this series, we look at the future of warfare, which will see uniformed soldiers or boots on the ground, being replaced by private military companies, autonomous weapon systems, and cyber weapons. My name is Amin Lutfi, and I will be the co-host for the series, along with my colleague, Alessandro Arduino.
1: Thank you everyone for joining us. Today we are extremely delighted to have with us today, Dr. Adam Moore. Dr. Moore is an associate professor in geography department at UCLA. His work broadly revolves around political and geographical dynamics of war, militarism, peace or geography of conflict. Dr. Moore has brightened extensively on issue of ethnic conflict, nationalism, interstate war, post-war peace building. Southeast european politics military labor military contracting and the militarization on the u.s foreign policy today i would love with adam to focus our discussion on his most recent book published in 2019 empires of labor the global army that support the u.s war
0: again thank you so much for being with us today um, here adam uh, you know, I would like to maybe kick start our discussion with a broad question asking about what really motivated you to come up with uh, Empire's labor? Um, specifically, why do you think that this dispersed and transnational military recruitment system which forms the heart of the book, why does the system provide us with an ideal vantage point? for tracing the contours of the American empire, as you argue, or, you know, let's say if put in other words, what do practice of military labor recruitment really tell us about the nature of America's foreign presence, the nature of American empire? Okay,
2: yeah. Well, first off, you know, thank you both for having me uh, on this uh, podcast. Um, I don't know if military labor is an ideal vantage point for understanding American empire. Uh, But it is certainly an important, uh, if underappreciated one, I think. Uh, One point I would make is that empires have always uh, depended on foreign labor to sustain their overseas power. Uh, Whether this involves obtaining and maintaining control over colonial possessions or supporting the largest global network of military bases the world has ever seen, uh, and conducting decades-long military operations uh, in multiple countries. Uh, And thus, this book, I think, really allows us to apprehend certain parallels between the imperial presence. In its antecedents. Uh, second, I think military labor contracting is useful for tracing the effects of empire beyond bases and battlefields uh, in ways that are not always visible through other lenses. Uh, from changes in the economic and social status of people living in poor barangays along the outskirts of Manila, uh, to post-war fortunes, the uh, industrialized towns in Bosnia, to impacts on international and domestic politics uh, in countries like Nepal, uh, these various space-spanning uh, entanglements affecting countries and communities with seemingly no connection to the U.S.'s forever wars. Uh, these are really made visible through the analytical, analytical focus uh, this book takes. Um, as for motivation, I would say one reason uh, for writing this book uh, was actually a kind of a general annoyance uh, with how much attention has been given to mercenaries though they make up only a fraction of the military contractor workforce. Uh, indeed, I don't really engage with these writings at all in this book. Uh, Instead, one of my main aims is to give voice to the agency and the aspirations and experiences of the majority of laborers who perform logistics work uh, that, while not as sexy to most observers, it seems, is far more important in sustaining the U.S.'s overseas wars.
1: You just mentioned that when you were looking at the beginning of the research of your book, uh, uh, you realize that the focus uh, is on the military part of private military company. Uh, And there is, uh, we also already discovered during our BOTG podcast, uh, a perception that uh, private military just consists uh, in uh, people with a fancy dress and a gun. But then in your book, you mentioned that only about 8% of the military contractors are directly involved in soldiering, only 8%. The rest are hired for various activity ranging from cooking, construction, transportation, and so on. And also, if we look uh, at history, historical militaries around the world have often fulfilled this service uh, uh, through market in some way or the other. but then, uh, if we look, uh, as you suggest, uh, at the establishment of the LOGCAP, uh, Logistic Civil Augmentation Program in 1985, the nature and the degree of contracting is changed. And in your opinion, how so, and what exactly changed with LOGCAP?
2: Sure. Um, so, as you point out, uh, contracting out logistic support is not a new phenomenon, right? Um, I think what's changed is really the scale and scope of contracting, uh, which is unprecedented, at least in U.S. history. Um, so, for example, if you step back and examine contractor-to-troop ratios, uh, estimated contractor-to-troop ratios from the American Revolution to the first Gulf War, um, the picture we see is one of fairly consistent but not overwhelming reliance uh, on civilian support, uh, with contractor personnel uh, constituting usually between 5 and 20 percent of troop levels. Uh, in contrast, in the Three largest overseas uh, operations in the past two and a half decades that's the peacekeeping missions in the Balkans, uh, and then the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, the number of contractors has been roughly equal to or greater than the number of uniformed personnel in theaters of operation. And I think LogCap is, is important for understanding this shift, specifically following changes to the program in 1992, uh, because it created a comprehensive logistics contracting framework whereby. Prime contractors are now linked to specific geographical combatant commands, uh, and they offer them logistics services across the world. This contractor support is now institutionalized within the military and built into operational plans from the beginning, rather than conducted on an ad hoc basis. Uh, and moreover, under LogCap, uh, there is little that the military does not outsource to contractors, from base support activities such as laundry, food, building, facilities management waste and service disposal uh, and power generation to things like materials management uh, transportation construction uh, and even mortuary affairs
0: support uh, you mentioned uh, that you know that the the, number, the ratio of contractors to uniformed soldiers has really changed in the last three conflicts now we know we, or we've heard at least about you know, Iraq and Afghanistan, two of them a lot. But the third one we know much less about. Uh, so I'm wondering if you could go into a little bit about, um, uh, about, about peace operationalization in Bosnia and how this, uh, this elaborate infrastructure of contracting built in the Balkans really laid the grounds for post 9-11 contracting as well. Um is one of your, you know, in one of the you said what one of your informants mentioned in your book that I found very intriguing is that when the Americans left Bosnia, the Bosnians followed Americans. So how does that work? How did how did Bosnia come to be so central to the history of military contracting?
2: Sure. So really the first um, kind of time after the 1992 reforms to LOGCAP, the first time that it was utilized on a large scale, were these peacekeeping operations in Bosnia. So there were about 25,000 troops uh, at the peak of the mission uh, in 1996. And this was also then followed by peacekeeping operations in Kosovo in 1999. So essentially these operations served as a proving ground for LOGCAP log contracting and contracting more generally, just contracting more generally. So that's prior to the invasion of Iraq, it was expected that most logistic support would be contracted out. Um, Iraq, though, right, was a much different scale of operations, and unlike Bosnia, the prime log cap contractor, KBR, Caleb Brown and Root, uh, was not able to use local labor. Therefore, it turned to subcontractors, mostly from the Gulf states and Turkey, to amass the massive pool of foreign labor, unnecessary to fulfill its contractual obligations, so this pool of labor drawing heavily from you know, Philippines, uh, India, Sri Lanka, et cetera. Um, but KBR also started hiring uh, Bosnians, Macedonians, and kosovo Albanians who had worked for it in the Balkans. So these missions were drawing down at the same time that the Iraq war and its occupation was ramping up. Um, and so really then kind of Bosnians, as you know, they were no longer needed uh, in the Balkans were then pulled into Iraq and Afghanistan to work for KBR. Uh, in some cases this occurred as KBR managers shifted from Bosnia to Iraq and brought along their favorite local employees, um, but the company also set up recruiting offices run out of hotels uh, in Sarajevo uh, and in Tuzla, uh, recruiting Bosnians even who hadn't worked for it in the 1990s and early 2000s. And this practice continued by Fluor and Daimcore after they received uh, log cap contracts for Afghanistan in 2008. So in some ways there's kind of a path dependency right, that takes place. You start out then bringing Bosnians over, uh, our our Macedonians, of course, for Albanians over uh, in the early 2000s. And then the companies just keep going back to that well and recruiting more and more and more in the 2000s, early 2010s.
1: No, as you mentioned, uh, when it was winning the war in the former Yugoslavia, there were someone else also looking at hiring personnel. And I just remember, just as you were talking, the case of Muhammad Gaddafi that recruited uh, Serb snipers and mercenaries to protect. Uh, it didn't work out well, I recall. Mm-hmm. On uh, a related note, uh, as the United States complete the troop withdrawal from Afghanistan, are, we are witnessing on a daily basis, and also in some respect from Iraq, uh, we will see Iraqi and Afghans like Bosnian following the United States uh, in its war as well, or more broadly, how do you think the military contractor are preparing for the end of the war in the Middle East.
2: Yeah, I don't think we will see this uh, in terms of this, your first question about Iraqis uh, and Afghans. Um, in part because they were rarely hired by logcap contractors uh, and played a, a small role in offering base support services. Uh, and so, at the beginning, for example, in Iraq, they were not allowed. Uh, the company was not allowed to hire Iraqis. Um, most Iraqis and Afghans who who were hired uh, under log or under logistics contracts um, were hired for kind of smaller ones that were oftentimes more of a mix of off base support. Um, but also, I think one reason you won't see this is because there's now such a large pool of experienced labor from around the world to draw on as operations shift elsewhere. So for example, several Bosnians and Filipinos I interviewed, they're now working on bases in Africa for Fluor, uh, which is the prime logistics contractor for Africa Command. Uh, and I know of several more that are actively looking for such work, right? So you've had this drawdown, uh, and many people, you know, have done this for years, decades even this has become essentially a profession, right, and they're, they're, they're kind of desperately applying for the dwindling number of jobs, you know, maybe it might be in the Philippines, most of it, most of the growth in recent years has been in Africa, um, so that's really how they're preparing for it, some are shifting to other work, uh, but um, there's certainly a desire uh, for many people that I've talked to and kept in touch with uh, to continue this type of
0: work. One thing that I've found uh, quite interesting about the book is that you suggest that the shift in contracting has taken place not just over time, but also contracting looks differently in different places. So if we look at Iraq and Afghanistan, even though it's happening around the same time, the nature of contracting is just Look somewhat differently. And I'm wondering if you could maybe expand on that, maybe expand on how is it that Iraq or in what ways did Iraq and Afghanistan the experience of soldier or experience of military contractors differ in those places? I know one of the things that you mentioned is that that in, in, in Iraq, when a con when a contractor comes in, they're, they're guided throughout the way by American military convoy, but in Afghanistan, they're left to themselves and they're, they're more sort of independent, which comes with those precarity, but also, you know, possibility of maybe some kind of side venture and so on. So how is it, how would you compare Iraq and Afghanistan in terms of the nature of military contracting?
2: Yeah, I'll start with the convoy escort question because I think it's a really interesting case. Um, so in 2004, uh, insurgents began targeting uh, truck convoys carrying food and fuel and materials uh, from Kuwait and Turkey to US bases in Iraq. And so, as these attacks and hostage taking uh, of foreign drivers mounted, uh, India and the Philippines declared travel bans to Iraq for their citizens. Um, and this threw the military into a panic as, as hundreds of supply trucks got stuck at the border, uh, since Indians and Filipinos made up the majority of drivers at the time. Uh, and at one point that summer in 2004, the military estimated that it had less than a week's supply of food and water for troops remaining in the country. Um, to resolve the issue, the military first improved security measures for convoys, which uh, included an increase in military escort vehicles. So this is where we really had been this uh, heavy uh, armed military escorts, this policy of, of having military escorts for convoys uh, in, in Iraq. Um, then also the US government later uh, through the State Department uh, basically strong-armed uh, Kuwait to ignore the travel bans at its border crossings. So by the end of 2004, some of these uh, issues uh, had, had lessened. Uh, but then, then it's put in place then this policy of uh, armed uh, escorts for uh, convoys. Um, the problem for the military was that providing armed escorts is an incredibly deadly job. Uh, and in fact, according to one 2011 study, approximately at that point, approximately 1,000 troops had been killed while providing convoy escorts. And that was roughly one quarter of the total casualties at the time. Um, So, when operations in Afghanistan ramped up in the late 2000s, the military decided not to provide escorts for most transportation convoys in the country. Instead, they made contractors, so the transportation contractors, responsible for their own security. Now, in practice, this meant hiring private security companies, which were often just fronts for local warlords in Afghanistan, uh, are paying protection money to these warlords and the Taliban, actually, uh, in exchange for refraining from attacking trucks that transited territories they controlled. It's also true though, most of the transport convoys, right, uh, and the truckers were Afghan. So this is local labor, which is different than Iraq, which was more of this foreign labor, the third country national labor. Um, I think another difference uh, between in, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, it's kind of interesting, I don't really go much into in the book, is in, is in Afghanistan, a significant number of a third country national laborers have lived and worked off base, uh, especially around uh, Kandahar uh, and Kabul. Well, in Iraq, this was very rare. Almost every, every at least foreign contractor, right, lived uh, within uh, the compound, confines of a base. And I think Noah Coburn's book, uh, Under Contract, does an excellent job exploring the experiences of these workers, uh, many of whom came from Nepal. Some of the people I interviewed, you know, who had worked in both Iraq and Afghanistan, or worked only in Afghanistan, um, had at various points done jobs that were off base. Most of them were working on base, so if you work off base, you typically weren't um, working uh, under a log cap contract, even though sometimes subcontractors um, were based off base. But that, would, that actually would be one of the biggest differences. And I think then, as I said, I think Noah's book really captures uh, the experience you know, of living in a guest house in Kabul um, in a way that you just didn't see
1: uh, interact. Yes, as you mentioned, we just said, Noah, in our previous podcast uh, uh, talking about subcontracting, the dark world of subcontracting related to the Nepalese Gurkha. Mm-hmm. But as you just mentioned it now, moving from primary contracting to subcontracting, another key difference that you highlight uh, in your book uh, is that between a different type of contracting and company and recruiting processes, uh, there is a huge difference between prime contractor and then subcontractor. And this drastically impact the war experience. Can you lay out for our listeners some of the main difference between sub and prima contractors and how they shape the nature of work? Thank you.
2: Sure, yeah. I mean, so prime contractors, they tend to be US or international companies that receive a direct military contract. So such as KBR, our Fleur, Dyncor, Lewis Berger, et cetera. Um, In the wars in the Middle East and Afghanistan, prime contractors, in turn, have relied heavily upon subcontractors, Uh, and these usually come from Gulf countries or Turkey, Uh, and these subcontractors recruit the bulk of the foreign uh, labor force, and then they oftentimes then manage it on military bases. So one reason why I picked, actually, um, I I decided to look at or interview Bosnians and look at Filipinos is because they really ended up in kind of different Uh, uh, areas of this this contracting ecosystem, with Bosnians typically hired by prime contractors who recruited them directly uh, from Bosnia. And in contrast, Filipinos and most uh, workers from other South and Southeast Asian countries have worked for subcontractors and were hired through recruiting agencies that specialize in labor export. Uh, And so perhaps the most important determinant Of your experience as a foreign laborer on U.S. military bases and war zones was whether you worked for a prime or a subcontractor. And this is especially the case when it comes to pay, um, when it comes to base privileges uh, and living conditions. So if you worked for a prime contractor in Iraq, you usually had a wide range of base privileges. You could eat in the same dining halls as troops, you shopped in the same stores, you used the same gyms or other recreational facilities. You also usually had similar standards of accommodation as American contractors and bases, uh, and also were given paid leave multiple times a year, like American contractors. Subcontractors, in contrast, usually had none of these privileges. Uh, and they often lived in company-controlled mancaps that had substandard food uh, and living accommodations. Um, and you can think about this too, like in Afghanistan, well, sometimes the accommodations ended up being more brought together. Um, if you worked for a prime contractor as a warehouseman in Afghanistan, you might be paid something like thirty dollars to $50,000 a year, uh, while the same job uh, performed by an employee of a subcontractor might pay only eight dollars to $10,000 a year. Um, so considering some of these disparities, and this is just you know, some of the, I think, the differences in terms of experience. Um, there are others but considering these disparities, especially I think in pay and privileges, you can understand why jumping from a subcontractor to a prime contracting firm uh, would be so attractive to workers, uh, despite the risks uh, that this entailed. Uh,
0: jumping, I mean, normally what, what did you mentioned or, or going from, you know, one job to another, going from maybe subcontractor to a prime contractor normally i mean in everyday life we think of you know that's just how work works but you suggest that this needs to be taken in the world of contracting as an act of resistance um, and it brings up in open an uh, uh, an issue that seldom gets talked about in writings on military contracting is this issue of of pushback or how how the, the labor uh, demand for better working conditions, or demand for, you know, better or for more rights. And you suggest that one of the reasons that, that it gets overlooked is because, uh, it, it, resistance doesn't look what we expect it to look. It doesn't look as people coming out on the streets, but it's often these acts like jumping people going from one job to another or making sort of, you know, what might otherwise be considered, um, smell or uh, small or petty complaints about food and living conditions. Um, So I'm wondering if you could elaborate some of, some examples of of these acts of resistance, some examples of these pushbacks, what did they look like actually on the ground?
2: Sure, sure. I mean, I think one of the big reasons why you don't see much written about this uh, is because, right, reporters don't have access to military bases. So actually protests and living about food and living conditions and strikes, they could all, oftentimes be quite large uh, and visible, and in some cases violent, but you just wouldn't really see about them, right? Because the information wouldn't get out. Um, there are some exceptions to this. Sarah Stillman wrote a great article in the New Yorker a few years back uh, that discusses this. Um, and strikes, you know, especially in early years in Iraq, uh, could be quite large. Um, but my favorite, actually, example—just to give you an example of, uh, of this, of a strike—actually, was a smaller one. It was a threatened strike by 18 firefighters uh, in Kandahar a few years back. So they basically had been asking uh, this company, this uh, contractor for firefighting rescue support services, uh, for increase in wages. They'd been sending letters to the CEO for a year. Uh, they'd been ignored. <clears throat> the CEO came to Kandahar. Uh, to check on company operations. And so they all decided they were gonna threaten a strike en masse. So they packed up all their bags, dropped them on the tarmac and said, we're walking off now unless you you meet with us. Um, And this was fascinating because if they'd gone through with their threat, it would have crippled flight operations at the airport due to a resulting decrease in firefighting and rescue capabilities. It would have lowered the airport's international civil aviation uh, organization rating. uh, Below that required to handle large uh, transport planes. There have been massive fines against the contractor for breach of contract. Um, so the company and the manager, they folded on the spot, doubling the firefighters' salaries uh, from 1000 to 2000 a month. So really, when it came to strikes, it, it really was, you know if they were successful, it really required leverage like that, um, like dining facilities operations were another one where you saw successful strikes. Protests tended to be more around living accommodations or food or delays in pay. <laughs> um, Now jumping in in contrast from one company to another usually occurred because people want better pay or base privileges. And this would usually then be from a subcontractor to a prime contractor. And jumping now was done by individuals and it's done on the sly. You're kind of hiding this from your employer because if your employer caught you before all the paperwork was completed, they would inform the military that they no longer considered you an employee authorized to accompany the force. That is, they would ask the military to revoke your letter of authorization, allowing you to be on the base. And so when this happens, the workers immediately deported from the base and sent home. So right to work on bases, in short, is dependent on the good graces of one's employer. Um, so you, I think you can see then how, like, if you can successfully jump, this kind of threatens this iron-fisted control that employers have over the labor force, right? And you saw this then in terms of how companies responded to Um, So. Contracting subcontractors would go to great lengths to prevent this practice from threats of large fines and legal proceedings against workers back home uh, to increased surveillance and restrictive curfews on bases, to informal agreements, not to hire uh, other companies employees on a particular base. So essentially anti-labor collusion that would take place.
1: Madam, you just mentioned uh, a strike from firefighter. I wonder when uh, armed contractors get on strike. There is a case not long ago on a floating armory. Floating armory is this uh, barge in the middle of international water that is full uh, of automatic weapon, even RPG, that are rented to private security mm. contractors uh, aboard the ship. And there was a case of this guard that was uh, stuck on the boat for a really long time due to COVID-19, probably not paid, and then he take uh, his grievance in his own hand with uh, an automatic rifle, and it didn't Mm. end very well, I have to say. (laughs) But back uh, with what you mentioned, you just mentioned that despite the risk that work entails, that really strikes me. Uh, in my personal opinion, one of the aspects that set your book apart is that your discussion on the impact of military contracting does not stop with laborers going back home. We have to take into consideration the trauma, the social relation, the disruption of the social relation, the capital accumulated during the war that travel back with laborers back with the worker at home. So, Could uh, you highlight some of the way in which laborers remake their home society and after returning from war zone? Moreover, how does this result in what uh, is being called the everywhere of war?
2: Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the more interesting things I discovered while conducting interviews is is that it's not just how capital and these altered social relations and trauma travel back home that it's important uh, when laborers discuss how this work has changed their lives. Um, their perspective is also profoundly shaped by their understanding of the society they live in and the potential opportunities available when they come back home right so many Filipinos I talked with for example uh, emphasize positive outcomes uh, of their experiences particularly told me that the money uh, they earned would afford a better future for their families especially through sending their children to private schools and universities Thus, an economic capital would be translated into educational and social capital. that would give their children a better chance of moving into the upper or into the middle class. Uh, In contrast, a significant significant number of Bosnians felt their experience had done little to fundamentally improve their lives outside of a temporary boost in income. Uh, And this is, I thought, somewhat surprising because their pay and working conditions were usually much better than Filipinos due to the fact that most of them worked for prime contractors. But in contrast, and the primary reason the Bosnians really are equivocal about military work has to do with the condition of precarity uh, in post-war Bosnia. This ranges from high unemployment, economic insecurity, to corruption and divisive ethno politics, and struggles to regain a sense of normalcy uh, in the aftermath of war and displacement in the 1990s. Um, There was this phrase, facing the reality of this life here, which was a common expression. uh, that you know, people told me that really I think kind of captures this disillusionment uh, and pessimism. So therefore I think when we look at the effects of everywhere, the everywhere of war, and by that I mean the various social, economic, and political entanglements produced by US military contracting that extend across the globe, um, they're really diverse and shaped as much by workers' home life as their experiences in the war zones.
0: Yeah. Uh- Adam, if I could bring you to a discussion that has been ongoing on this podcast series, uh, really from the start, is this issue of regulation uh, and, 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 and sort of setting the rules of the game for the private military industry. Uh, so often, the discussion that we've had with practitioners and academics, we run across a problem that while uh, you know, greater or more st- or tighter regulations look Great on paper, when they come into effect on the ground, they often only end up pushing the market into the gray area, or they end up pushing contractors into more opaque spaces that end up producing more problems than, than, than positive outcomes. Um, and, if, and you kind of mentioned that in when you talk about, and even in this earlier, when we we're having discussion, you said that You know, when India and Philippines put that travel ban and put the border ban, it only meant that the workers had to take more precarious routes or they had to go through more underground channels. Mm -hmm. So is there really any way out of this dilemma? Are we really stuck with this issue of, you know, if we go for greater regulation, the market just goes underground? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I guess I'll speak to the case of US military contracting, in
2: particular logistics contracting. Um, I'll I'll keep my comments (laughs) focused on this. And I'll say in this, I don't think there really is a way out of this dilemma uh, that doesn't start with recognition of the key role that the military and the US government more generally plays in allowing labor exploitation to exist, to persist. Um, I don't think this is really a story of unscrupulous contractors. Um, to me, what really stands out is the inability and really the unwillingness of the military to provide perfective, effective oversight of contractors, uh, and that's especially subcontractors. Uh, so this oversight with regard to treatment of workers. Uh, and this is despite the fact that these workers' employment is entirely a consequence of the military's contracting needs. Instead, what it has done is continuously tried to minimize responsibility for trafficking and other labor abuses committed by its contractors. Um, And it's striking really how it uses these legalistic arguments to justify or explain lack of oversight and responsibility uh, by defining its authority and jurisdictional powers in the narrowest possible terms when it comes to cases of exploitation. Essentially, it really only places what's going on within the walls of a base, right, within the wires. Um, And in this, the military's actions are similar to large corporations, I think, which have extended offshore supply chains uh, in which they try to evade responsibility for substandard labor conditions suffered by those at the end of these chains. So I don't think it's really a question of new regulations um, when we're looking at some of the uh, labor exploitation practices, Uh, um, but rather if the military was actually uh, willing to aggressively investigate and punish its subcontractors who commit labor abuses uh, and facilitate human trafficking, Uh, we would see uh, changes in the industry's behavior. Uh, I think absent this, nothing really will change.
1: You also draw some very interesting parallels between military recruitment and the Kafala system standard in the Persian Gulf. Uh, Can you expand on this parallel and especially explain why foreign labor recruitment in the Gulf may be a good place to start thinking about military contracting?
2: Yeah, um, I think one clear parallel is the recruiting process uh, for people from South and Southeast Asian countries who are employed by military subcontractors. Um, so for most workers from countries like India or Nepal and the Philippines, the recruiting process, I think from the role of local agents to fees in terms of contracts to experiences of labor trafficking in particular debt bondage, uh, really has shared characteristics with the broader recruiting assemblage That facilitates this massive labor import export regime between wealthy Gulf Petro states and poor uh, labor exporting countries. Uh, A second parallel, I think, concerns the dependence of workers on their employers to maintain their work status. So, just as migrant laborers' right to live and work in countries with kafala labor laws is controlled by their employer or sponsor, uh, third country nationals working on military bases do not have alternative work options if their employer informs the military they're rescinding their sponsorship. Right, instead, they are sent home. The um, third thing I would highlight is that military workers employed by subcontractors uh, have endured a host of these abuses that really parallel experiences of many labor migrants in the Gulf. Uh, from confiscation of passports, which make it impossible to jump from one firm to another, uh, to wage thefts, uh, to excessive recruiting fees, to substandard living conditions, uh, and occasionally uh, trafficking. And I'd say that really none of these parallels are that surprising perhaps when you consider that the largest military subcontractors in Iraq and Afghanistan tend to be firms from the Gulf uh, and also Turkey. Um, But the result we see that is that the military has, in effect imported these uh, exploitative labor practices the parallel conditions experienced by labor migrants elsewhere in the region. Uh, And it has imported these practices while at the same time then deliberately exercising minimal oversight responsibility.
0: If I could shift the discussion a little bit from the Middle East to a part of the world that we are currently based out of, out of uh, namely Singapore. Now Singapore, even if it's not directly involved in the war itself, it remains an important to the global military labor logistics and migration infrastructure as a transition hub for uh, you know, laborers either looking to get into, into military work or get out of it. I'm wondering if you could elaborate for our listeners in Singapore on what what role like places like these small countries like Singapore transit places play in this broader infrastructure. Sure. Um, I don't know if I can
2: really speak too much to this question. And um, you know, I think it's in part really kind of based on, you know, where I did interviews, who I did interviews with. Um, so... I would say though that I think Singapore uh, was important for some Filipino laborers who were evading uh, travel bans uh, to Iraq and Afghanistan. So after these travel bans were put in place, the recruiting uh, industry really went underground, right? So you still had recruiting agencies in Manila, uh, trying to right, assemble uh, pools of labor for these subcontracting countries, sending them abroad um, kind of surreptitiously. Um, so what took place, actually, sometimes these newly recruited workers uh, are those who had actually already been in Iraq and Afghanistan, who were who returning home to see family for a period of time. Um, rather than flying uh, directly to the UAE, they would first uh, get a flight to Singapore uh, and then get a Singapore to UAE. Uh, and they did this to evade officials at Manila's, envelope, or, sorry, Manila's uh, airport, uh, who were carefully scrutinizing travelers that were flying directly uh, to the Gulf. So this is one way in which kind of Manila came up uh, in some of these stories or sorry uh, Singapore came up in some of these stories. Um, I, I don't know if I can really speak to this much more broadly, though. Um, again, I think it, it might be a different story if we looked uh, you know, at the or, or other kind of labor flows. Um,
1: yeah. And this, Adam, uh, I would like to end our discussion with the million-dollar question that we ask to all our guests, uh, and they have, just as you, a few minutes to answer to that. And the question is, what would warfare look like in the coming 30 year, especially in what ways do you think our future will be shaped by what you call a forever war, and especially the everywhere war?
2: Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. Um, don't know if I have a good answer to you. I'm not really, I guess, a warfare futurist, um, but I think you know military contracting, uh, especially in the realm of logistics, has certainly been critical for maintaining the forever war mindset in the U.S. Uh, and this is because it plays an important, I think, risk transfer role by shifting the composition of military labor from uniformed and American to civilian and foreign. Um, This said, I think there are really kind of some signs of this forever war mindset. that's starting to be questioned by policymakers in DC, which I find hopeful. So I think on this kind of question of the forever war, um, uh, we might actually, and I hope, we might be seeing a shift, let's say, kind of in in how the US uh, thinks about war uh, and interventions abroad. Um, More generally, I think, right, technological changes, uh, including automation and autonomous warfare, are likely to be increasingly important in future decades. Um, Some people say, right, this would mean kind of the end of military labor, a shift, right, from military labor to military, you know, technology. Um, But I think when it comes to labor, really, new technologies often distribute and reconfigure it in different ways uh, rather than doing away with it, right? So with drones, you really reconfigure kind of the labor uh, network that's required to support a drone, right? You have people sitting in, you know, um, air-conditioned, you know, containers in, you know, Las Vegas or, or New Mexico. Uh, you have people, you know, flying the drones. You have people, right, uh, analyzing uh, imagery in the, in the Virginia, you know, Greater Washington D.C. area. So we'll certainly see, I think, with technology, kind of a, a redistribution and reconfiguration of, of some of the labor uh, necessary and some of the, the labor, how labor looks and labor networks look. Um, and so I will say, I think that you know, military contracting will continue to play a prominent role in warfare uh, when countries want to project force outside their borders. Um, And this probably won't just be the US, right? Um, We see in Russia, for example, and now relies heavily on Wagner and other contractors to exert influence on conflicts in Syria, you know, Libya, Central African Republic, uh, et cetera. So I don't know if that really
0: uh, explains your question well, um, but I guess I'll end there with those thoughts. It, it does. It does. I mean, Adam, it's been an absolute pleasure having you here with us. You know, thank you so much for you know sharing your thoughts and really opening a new window into this dispersed and massive global military labor logistics infrastructure that you know without which the 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 entire you know post nine eleven war, all these wars that what might not have been possible. Um, so you know, thank you for being with us here today. And joining us in the end, I also want to thank our MEI events uh, team. Without whose support, this podcast would not have been possible. And thank you so much to all the listeners for joining in. Please do keep us sending your questions and our comments. uh, And we hope to be back with you very soon with a new episode. Goodbye, everyone. Yes, thank you both for having me. All right.